The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages. I am Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. I want to start off with a heartwarming story from, uh, where is this from? Anyway, heartwarming story in Philadelphia, which the city, what is that, the city of brotherly love. However, in this case, it's the city of an attempted carjacking. <laughs> now, as some of you may know, with the with the advent of uh, the coronavirus, I'm going to say advent because I really don't think it was all as much of a threat as they said it was, but delivery drivers and delivery services have boomed in the United States. I mean, everybody can get almost any kind of food delivered to their house almost any time. Well, there was a gentleman out 7.30 p.m., a 39-year-old pizza delivery driver was delivering food in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when an armed 35-year-old man approached the delivery driver in an attempt to steal his car. What the suspect didn't know is that if the delivery driver was carrying his own, that the delivery driver was carrying his own gun and was prepared to use it. The, deli- the delivery driver drew his concealed gun, shot multiple times at the suspect, and he was, the suspect was taken to the hospital in critical condition. And there was no report as to how many times the suspect was hit, but you know, one hit is better than uh, any misses. Now, keep in mind, you know, if you're delivering food or delivering anything, if you're an Uber driver, if you're a Lyft driver, anytime you're dealing with people that you don't know on a personal basis, you put yourself in a certain amount of danger. Now, I know a lot of companies go through some screening processes in order to weed out people who could cause potential problems. Most places have reviews, so you can check reviews on people to see how they've done in the past when dealing with with uh situations like this as far as if a, a driver or a rider is considered a good fare or a good tipper or if delivery to a certain location is has been done before with no incidents. Now, I guess if you're working on the delivery end, you don't really have time to check every person who's calling in and asking for food to be delivered or food brought to them or, you know, delivery of whatever. So you have to just kind of go out there and hope for the best. And the craziest thing is a lot of these companies dissuade or even make it against company policy for the drivers or delivery people to be armed. Now, we talked about a couple weeks ago in Georgia, there was a law coming up where they may be able to make companies who don't allow you to carry your weapon into their establishment or into their business responsible for your safety in the event that anything happens. Since they are taking away your right to protect yourself, they then automatically, by default, will take on the responsibility of your safety by not allowing you to carry your own. Now, I don't know how this law fared because there were some other ridiculous things that were stuck in there that made it uh, difficult to swallow, so to speak. But this is the kind of thing we need to start thinking about. I mean, you have a constitutional right to protect yourself by using a gun. 
And if a company takes that right away from you or changes their policy to not allow you to exercise your constitutional right, then they need to become ultimately responsible for your safety completely and absolutely. If anything happens to you while you're on their premises where they don't allow you to have a weapon, then they need to be fully responsible for anything that happens, even though the fact they did not do it themselves or promote it in any way, they're allowing an armed person to come in there, cause harm to people, and you not allowed to protect yourself. Just something to consider, I guess. But anyway, okay, now there's this is something that we've been talking about for years, uh, smart guns. Smart guns, to me, don't seem all that smart. Because you got to consider, okay, most smart guns have some sort of electronic mechanism by which they recognize the official user. I remember the original ones years ago had a special ring you had to wear out of a certain kind of metal, or I think it was a steel or iron alloy that would allow a magnet inside to unlock the weapon. The uh, Cracker Jack ring would not work? Is that what you're saying? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it would have. Maybe it would have. I don't know. It was very crude and, re- and, and rudimentary, though, the way it worked. I think it was based on a magnet lock or something. And if the ring wasn't positioned just right, it wouldn't unlock the gun. It just seemed like it would put you in extreme danger when you needed to have protection. You had to do everything just right, which everyone knows when to, with adrenaline flowing, nothing ever goes as planned. <laughs> That's like the story from a couple months ago with the guy who kept his gun with a magazine in it, but not, or had it, the magazine and the gun separate, and he just thought, oh, I'll have plenty of time to load it and rack it when someone comes in and tries to rob me. And that proved to be incorrect. He was shot while trying to load his gun. <laughs> if he had the gun loaded and it was ready to go, he would have fared much better. Because he fumbled, he dropped the magazine, and then the, the, the robber saw that he had a weapon and then started shooting at him before he got a chance to even load his weapon. Which is just silly. I mean, unless you train for that, unless you carry your gun on you and you have a magazine and you can load that thing in, in milliseconds, in fractions of a second, don't try and do that just by thinking, oh, I went to the range one time, I know how the gun works, and I'm going to be able to do that in a high-stress situation. Now, I've seen... When I was a range safety officer, I watched a guy who came in. He was, I believe he was a contractor for military, for certain military companies in various parts of the world. And he was training with his weapon because he was not allowed in certain countries to carry around in the chamber. And it was fascinating watching him because he was, he was working this skill to the nth degree. He wanted to be completely prepared if anything were to happen. And he'd draw the weapon, and as he drew it out, his hand would grab onto the back of the slot, he'd push it forward, and as he pushed it forward, it would rack, and the gun would be coming up on target. And he, I watched him do it probably two or three dozen times. And every time, he got a little faster and a little smoother, and he was able to draw and rack that weapon almost as fast as somebody could just draw and have it on target. It was amazing. But it takes that kind of dedication to that. Don't think, oh, I'm just going to leave it unloaded, and I'll ch- I'll have plenty of time to chamber one when the time comes, if something happens. That's like saying, oh, I'll have time to put on my seatbelt before I get in an accident. <laughs> I'm not going to wear it now. <laughs> I'll just wait till I get uh, until I'm about to get in an accident, and then I'll put it on right before I hit another car. Yeah, things don't work like that. It's ridiculous to think that. But again, if, if that's the way you feel comfortable carrying, and you think you'll have that much time, I would say at least practice racking the gun or 
If it's if it's loaded and not and not racked or doesn't have a round in the chamber, condition one, then practice putting it into condition one at least several dozen times so you know when you pull that gun out and you go to rack it, it's going to happen without you having to think about it, without you having to hesitate. So then you might have a fighting chance. Like I say, the gentleman I watched do it, he was as fast as some people drawing out of a holster after he racked the weapon because he had a technique down that helped him by the time he was pushing up on target, he was racking it at the same time. And like I said, it was extremely fast. I was very impressed at how fast and quickly he was able to do that. But that's the thing. Training is everything. And it's funny because gun sales again this year are booming. And I'm sure after this latest bit of international uh, events with Russia invading the Ukraine... Even though it's not happening here, people still feel the need to arm themselves. And it's funny, if you've been looking at the Internet at all or on any social media, there's somebody who, there's a, a meme floating around that says, if there's ever been a reason why people need to know why you need an AR-15 and 30-round magazines, look at any news channel right now, and you'll see the reason why. <laughs> now, everyone says, oh, that could never happen here. You know, you would think not, but yeah, what if some country decides to try and invade us? Especially with the um, with Brandon in office. You know, he's such a strong leader in all, all these respects. I would trade him for President Zelensky a thousand times over. If you've seen those, oh my God, this guy's battle-dressed, weapon, weapons hot, carrying a weapon into battle to help defend his country, his people, and his honor, it looks like. And, of course, what does Joe Biden do? He says, oh, we can sneak in there and get you out of the country. His response was, I need ammunition. The fight is here. I am here. I don't need a ride. <laughs> That's a real leader. That's just uh, he has my admiration from here on out. I don't foresee him doing anything to lose that anytime soon. That's the kind of leader we have. That's that's the kind of leader we should have. I'm sorry to say, yeah, we should have. And Biden is not him. Now, I don't know that Trump would have rushed to get into battle gear, but I bet he would have been decisive in his action. He would have done something quickly to try and stop this and keep it from happening. It's funny. Trump was the only president in the 21st century who who not stopped them, but Russia didn't invade another country while he was president. During Bush, during Obama, during Biden, all these other presidents allowed Russia to invade other countries. It was Crimea at one point, and then I can't remember the other one during um, Obama's time. Georgia, maybe. But yeah, Russia went into different countries. Every time we had a different president, he went into other countries except when Trump was in office. Because I think he realized Trump was not a weakling. He was a strong-minded, decisive person who would have made a decision very quickly to shut that down if it happened. He would have done something to help stop it without getting us twisted up. But now, now that Biden shut down the pipelines, we're not getting oil anymore from our own country. We've, we went from being completely energy independent to being completely dependent on foreign energy. So now the Russians have us literally over the barrel because we, we're buying 600,000 barrels a day from Russia. Oh, gosh, it just seems like it's so stupid and people don't see it. But anyway, if you feel the need that now might be the time to be armed, I encourage you, do it. That's it. Uh $106 a barrel, by the way. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, 
Uh, I don't know how to, and you got to re- oil or uh, gas prices. What a year ago were what a dollar eighty nine, dollar ninety nine, two twenty nine, maybe tops. Most of it was under two dollars a gallon. Now it's almost three fifty to four fifty a gallon, maybe five if you're in California or New York. Because we rely on, we went back to energy dependence. Why on earth would we do that? Go backwards? I don't understand it at all. It's completely ridiculous. But anyway, if you're feeling well, it, the theory is we're going to take so much oil from them, they'll be out of oil. Right. Yeah, and they're sitting there laughing as they go to the bank at one hundred and six dollars a barrel. They can they can buy all the solar panels and windmills they want for that kind of money. But you know, the Democrats have always been of the opinion that Americans don't pay enough for their fuel. They think we should pay what Europe pays or what Japan pays. They think that's the kind of thing we should have here so it would encourage alternative energies. You can't force technology that's not there. Just like in California when they have the gun roster. They want a gun that will uh, mark a shell in two places with a unique code to be able to identify it to a certain gun. The technology for that may exist, but it's so far-fetched and so high-tech, it would be ridiculously expensive. And they know that. So it is essentially backdoor gun control. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't like anything coming in the back door. I'm sorry. I want to see somebody face-to-face. You show me what you're trying to do. But they're doing it, and people are just going along, not paying attention to anything, letting them get away with this. And apparently the last lawsuit about the magazines was shut down in California. They The courts came together, and they finally said, no, having only 10 rounds is not a violation of constitutional amendments, the Second Amendment. But uh, I just hope someone would bring this to court, that they have the roster of guns with technology that would be prohibitively expensive, unless they enforce it for everybody in the state. Let all the bodyguards for the politicians have to carry guns that provide the two, the, the, the distinguishing marks on the shelves. Let the police carry them. Let the state troopers carry them. Let everybody in law enforcement who has a weapon who's not, not under the civilian restrictions, let them carry these guns. Let them only get these weapons that are restricted by being able to make a uniquely distinguishing mark on a shell. Let that happen first. Lead by example. And they're not going to do it because they know the technology is not there and they would end up getting inferior products. And, of course, the politicians believe their lives are worth more than any of their constituency. And that's where we have the biggest problem. Equality under the law no longer exists. These politicians have put themselves head and shoulders above the common citizenry, the common peasants, and they have decided they are going to be a ruling class. And until we stop them, we still have the power now, I believe. Now, granted, the last election was, I think, kind of shaky in its results, and there was all kinds of uh, questions about legitimacy and legality and... uh, I guess, how would you say, um, honesty <laughs> in <laughs> counting the votes? But I think we can still overcome that for now. Now, if it goes too much further, we're going to be a third-world country, and we'll never have a fair election in this country again. But it's time to get these anti-gun people out of office. I'm Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded. We'll be right back after some messages. Thanks. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show's hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is Roger B., and I'm back. You're listening to Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Now, before we left for the break, I was talking about smart guns and how the original technology was so rudimentary and so ridiculously flawed. Well, now the military is looking at RFID tags in weapons that they have. Now, the RFID tags, in case you don't know, are those little electronic, I guess, chips that they put on things to prevent theft in big department stores or they put on uh, certain machines and inventory in order to keep track of things to make sure that nothing gets stolen. Now, what the military is thinking, they can tag all their weapons with these RFID chips, and that way they could do an instant count to see how many weapons are there. If anything's missing, they can tell what it is, the serial number, and be able to track it down. And it sounds like a great idea. Help The, the technology can help them keep track of things and be more efficient at, at, with inventories and uh, possible thefts and things like that. So they've, they've decided to start using this technology, and there's... Only one problem with it, though. With that technology being able to track the weapons, that opens it up for other people or other countries to be able to track weapons as well. Now, you might say, well, you know, these weapons are in the armory. They're in the hands of the soldiers. You know, what are they going to do, track them and come try and take their guns away? No, but what they could do is with a large number of signals on a huge number of guns moving somewhere through a country, they can track our troop movements just like it was in a video game. You could watch these people move through a country or move to a certain destination. The The idea of having a stealth operation is completely lost if they tag every gun in the military. So this, is, this could be a significant security risk for the military. Now, the Marines have rejected the RFID tags, which is actually a very good idea because I think they realized that using them would be a significant risk and cause them to have just put everybody in harm's way much quicker if you're in an actual battle situation. Now, like I say, it does trim some of the uh, labor-intensive tasks down to a, a more sizable, you know, sizable time unit because you can track these weapons, find out where they are and uh, keep count of them so nothing gets stolen, misplaced. If a truckload of guns is sitting somewhere and nobody knows where it is, they can go back and find it. But the same technology that helps them do that will also help our enemies track massive troop movements, massive movements of weapons through trucks and everything. Because the more of them they are, the easier they are to track. So it's kind of funny that they're doing this, and they didn't think about the possibility that this might be something... That would cause us harm rather than good. So, you know, I mean, the idea was good, but this just, it's not going to work. You don't want to give up your location to your enemy by having uh, RFID trackers and all your weapons. So, we'll have to see. Now, of course, the gun control people are all about putting RFID tags in every gun sold to the public in order to be able to track them. 
Even though keeping track of weapon sales is highly illegal, just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the ATF not disposing of records as they were supposed to, keeping records on file illegally and making lists of gun owners and what they own. So this is going to be something that's this RFID technology, this could be something that they try and push onto civilians. Which I'm sure if they do, YouTube is going to be full of videos on how to disable, remove, or make ineffective these RFID tags. So that's have to, you know, you'd have to see that people would have to discover where they are and they could track them in a weapon. I guess you could get a scanner that would track its location and you could either change that part out or destroy the part somehow so it wouldn't be able to track anything if they put it on civilian weapons. But uh, there you go. And they're saying, oh, it'll help track people who use firearms illegally. Yes, but it will also track everybody who has weapons so these criminals can come and find more weapons to steal. It's just like giving them a big, you know, a big storefront with a neon sign saying, there's weapons here, come try and steal them. So you, there's another, I'm sorry, but that's just, that's not the way smart guns need to be done if you want to do something like that. You know, a smart gun requires a smart person. That's the way we need to have smart guns. Have people trained, have people not knowledgeable in what they're doing, and be able to use a gun properly, just like with any other tool, whether it be a hammer, a, a circular saw, whatever. These people need to know how to use this equipment properly in order to avoid harming themselves and or others. Same thing with a gun. You need to have the training in order to be able to shoot it properly. And the training is the most important thing. I can't stress that enough. And most people say, oh, I go to the range once every few months, and that's fine. That would be a good start. But then, what if you run out of ammo in your gun? You're firing, and you fire your 8, 10, 15, 22 rounds, whatever your gun holds, and you still need to be effective. How fast can you dump that magazine and reload that gun? Have you ever tried that? Have you ever trained for that? That's something a lot of people don't do. And it's, you know, most of the time it's not going to be necessary. In fact, there are some times that I carry a smaller weapon. I don't carry a backup magazine for it because it's a small gun. I'm trying to be discreet and I don't have the space or the room or want to footprint anything to be able to do that. But if you were in a battle situation and you have your gun and you have your extra magazines, do you know how to reload quickly? Now, there's different kinds of reloads. There's a forced one. You're shooting. You run out. Your slide locks back. You need to get that gun up and running ASAP. No question about it. You need to get ammo in that gun and get it up and running quickly as possible. And then there's an opportunity reload. You're in the heat of a battle. You duck behind something. You have good cover. You decide, you know what, I think I got 10 or 12 rounds out there. I'm going to go ahead and put my fresh mag in there. And in this case, you want to put your used mag in your pocket, put the new mag in so you have a full magazine to go into the next round. And, you know, a lot of people don't think about this because you think, you know, most most gun encounters in the United States are over in a matter of seconds, and they take, a, you know, a fractional number of what most weapons will hold. Usually they're, you know, I think it's like three to two to five rounds or something like that is the average gun encounter with a civilian. Now, the military and the police departments, they train for this kind of thing more frequently and more effectively. But civilians, you should be able to do this, too. I mean, what if a force invaded the United States and there was battling going on on the streets? <coughs> Could you effectively re- reload your weapon quickly if that slide locks back? Or what if you have an issue? Your gun jams. You pull that magazine out. Could you get another one up in there quickly and get that gun up and running? Unjam it, fix it, load that magazine, and have it up and running within one or two seconds? 
If not, consider taking a class and learning how to do this, or at least study some YouTube videos, buy some dummy rounds, and practice this. Do not practice this with live ammo unless you're at the range and you've had some experience with it. You don't want to try and clear a jam that you've had no experience with with live ammo for the first time. (coughs) Sometimes it's just a matter of necessity. You're shooting the gun jams, but now most of the time when this happens at the range, you have time. Nobody's shooting back at you. There's no tank barreling down the road coming down in your position. You have time to look, examine it, remove the magazine, pull the slide back, drop any rounds out, check it for clear before you go to reload it. But when time is a factor, that has to be done much more quickly, much more effectively in order to be good training. In order to be effective in a battle situation, you need to know how to do that quickly. And the best way to start is slow. Start slow, carefully, deliberately. Don't worry about your speed at first. First, you just want to get the mechanics down. You want to get the motions down. Learn how to reload the gun. Learn how to do it a little faster. Learn how to do it while you're standing up and not sitting on the couch or laying the gun down on the on the counter at the at, in the shooting range, getting the other magazine out, unloading the other one, picking up the gun again and loading it. Try and do it all with your hands full. Now, when you do this, there's one thing you need to remember. When you start, you may do it lower down, closer to the table. You'll be looking down. As you learn, as you can, this becomes more muscle memory, you need to pick that gun and, and ammo up. Pick the gun and magazine up when you do that. Hold it in front of your face. Hold it in front of your eyes so your eyes can still look forward and assess any possible threats coming at you. You don't want to be looking down and have somebody come at you that you don't see. Situational awareness is everything. Well, I got a little off topic there, but we were talking about the RFID guns, and this is why we don't want them. This is why we don't trust the anti-gunners, because they're always trying to do something to track, to disarm, to make it more difficult for civilians to have weapons. And it's funny, when Joe Biden was said, nobody needs an AR-15 or an AK-47, I bet every civilian in the Ukraine would argue that point, and for damn good reason because they all need weapons and i'm sure a lot of you guys have seen this they have uh i think it was uh, miss ukraine the the miss universe pageant winner or something she was holding a weapon they show families learning how to shoot weapons how to handle guns <clears throat> the president learned how to well he was i believe he was in the military i'm not sure but he, he, they show him dressed up in battle gear holding a weapon, the mayor of Kiev manning a weapon. And then there was the gentleman who was, I think, was an MMA fighter. He could have taken his millions, left the country, but no, he decided instead to stay and fight. He was fighting for his country. All these people have this loyalty to their country and their families. They want to keep Russia out. And now Russia seems to be stepping up their attacks. And if they take the Ukraine, what's next? Do you think our country would be prepared to stop them? Would we have enough people here to do that if they decided to do a full invasion force or start nuking the United States to clear out some of the bigger cities and then come in? That means everybody who's in the outskirts is going to have to have a weapon because the military and the police are not going to be centralized enough to help protect you. So again, you are your own first responder and always should be. This is the kind of thing that you need to be prepared for. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen here. I'm, I don't think the Russians are going to head here. I don't think they're that arrogant or that stupid. 
Although with Joe Biden in office, I don't know if they think we're that stupid or not. I mean, the fact that they look at him and think, <laughs> Americans voted for that guy <laughs> over the other guy who kept me from invading any countries for four years while he was in office? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I say, that's something you take upon yourself. If you don't feel comfortable using a weapon, by all means, do not get one. Don't buy one. Don't have one around if you don't feel comfortable using it. But if you think you could feel comfortable using it, or you are comfortable with weapons to some extent, by all means, now would be a great time to get another one, or a third one, or a fifth one, or a twentieth one, whatever. And right now, the ammo supply is still short, but we'll talk about that when we come back. I am Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Do you love classic and special interest cars? If so, listen to our podcast every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time here on America's Web Radio. Or find us on your favorite podcast site, iTunes, Spotify, or any of the others out there. We'll talk about classic cars. We'll talk to car guys. We'll talk to clubs that are here at our facility here in Classic Auto Mall. And we'll also talk about Classic Auto Mall and how we can help you sell your classic or special interest car. So give us a listen every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Thanks. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega-dollar collector cars you can't afford, or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back. I'm Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Now, right before we left for the break, we were talking about... What would happen here in this country if we ended up in some sort of war situation? Would you be prepared for that? Would you be ready? Even if you don't have a gun, would you be prepared for the aftermath of a possible um, invasion force coming through your town, your city, or part of our country? Would you be prepared to deal with the aftermath of that? Don't know. Have you thought about it? Have you made any kind of plans? You know, I remember a few years ago, actually it was right when Obama got elected. Everybody thought for sure we were going to get in a war, everything was going to fall apart. And it turns out it took a little longer than that to get it done. Now, during the Biden administration, supply chains are running short. Everything is getting super high inflation. And you got to wonder, 
not only is it going to become difficult to afford all these things, but can you find them? Can you find enough food to feed your family, even when we're not in a war-torn situation? Is it going to be difficult in a war-torn situation to actually get this stuff? Absolutely. And then it comes down to preparedness, because, you know, how prepared are you for this kind of thing? Now, you don't want to spend your entire life preparing for something that may never happen, but there are simple steps you can take, simple things you can do that will make it easier if something were to happen, if you were to lose availability of food, of water, of medical supplies. Would you be ready for this? I mean, there are different stuff. First of all, you have medical emergency. That would probably be something that would happen early on as roads get blocked, as as roads get destroyed. You wouldn't be able to get to places you normally could. That'd be another thing to consider. Vehicles. Could your vehicle go off-road if it had to? Could it take an alternative route if there were blockages? How far could you get if the roads were gone? Would you have to walk most of the way? Do you have an off-road bicycle? Do you have an off-road motorcycle? Do you have an off-road vehicle other than a car? You know, all things to consider. Okay, so you have medical emergency. That's something to consider. Food and water and general survival preparation. Preparation for a specific event. Now, this is, these could be, I'm saying a lot of these can be natural events. Earthquake, hurricane, tornado. Then again, there's civil unrest, home invasion, things like that, flooding. These are things that you have to be prepared for all of them if you possibly can. Now, certain parts of the country are more susceptible to certain natural disasters than others. Obviously, if you're living somewhere in the middle of the country, the chance of a hurricane coming through there are probably almost zero. You know, unless as the climate change uh, advocates would say, oh, no, the weather's going to change so drastically, we're going to have hurricanes everywhere. But I take my word for it, I don't think there's going to be hurricanes anytime in Nebraska. There's just no way for the for the hurricane to travel that far inland. But people on the coast, you bet your butt they're going to need to be prepared for a hurricane. In fact, most of them experience some almost every year to some extent. Now, a lot of times they've diminished to the point where they're not as dangerous anymore than a strong storm, strong rainstorm. But still, you got to be prepared for this stuff and know what the threats are in your area. Know what you should be prepared for. And like I say, some of these, I probably wouldn't go to the extreme to be prepared for all of them. Because in certain parts of the country, the chance of it happening there are so minimal to put any effort or money into that kind of preparedness would be a waste of time. But let's consider this. Okay, civil unrest, for instance. That's way more dangerous, way more likely to happen in a big city. You know, the fact that you're in a little town, chances are not going to happen you're going to have civil unrest. I mean, in a rural area, there's always the possibility of some big excitement. You know, when Billy Bob drives his tractor into town drunk to go to the quickie mart to get some more beer but you know the fact that civil unrest is going to happen in a little town where people are going to come in in droves and block traffic and protest not near as likely but in a big city this the especially in the past few years it has been shown that this can certainly be a problem and what this does also is causes limited access to things. If you need medical attention and all the roads are blocked due to civil unrest, how do you get to the hospital? How do you find an alternative route? Can you get one? Or are you completely blocked off? Are you surrounded like the little area in Portland? They had the, uh, what is it, the autonomous zone in Portland for a long time. You would have to drive blocks and blocks of blocks to get around that to go to any hospital or medical center. Driving through it was not an option for a while because they had complete control over that area of an American city. It was an occupied territory within the United States. But unfortunately, the mayors, the 
the governors, the people who run those states and cities, they were allowing it to happen. They didn't stop it. They didn't let their police force interact aggressively enough to stop it. So this is something you may may have to deal with if you're in a big city. That's something you have to be prepared for. Do you have medical equipment at home enough to take care of at least minor injuries, minor issues? Do you have enough medicine at home if you take a a medicine every day or every week or if you need it occasionally? Do you have enough of it? to supply you for a couple of weeks if things were to shut down, if the supply chain were to get short. Especially with a lot of drugs coming from China, it wouldn't hurt to get extras of things that you need to live or to make your life functional. That's something you'd have to you'd have to have. So keep that in mind also. These are the kind of things a lot of people don't think of. A lot of people think I'm gonna buy guns, I'm gonna buy ammo, I might buy some freeze dried food and that's all I need. You know, but it'd be nice, you know, and then the, then the people who, who go a little bit further, they're going to say, you know what, when I buy my next truck, I'm getting a four-wheel drive because I might need to have access to getting off-road to go somewhere. I might need to have that capability. They might even get some extra fuel cans to keep in the back in case the time comes when they have to fill extra fuel cans to get a little more range out of their vehicle. And then there's the extreme version where the guy has, you know, two 55-gallon drums full of two different kinds of fuel, thousands of gallons of water, everything prepared. His whole entire existence is just to prepare for the ultimate falling apart of things. So you have to have a balance there. I'm not saying everybody needs to be completely prepared for every situation. But, you know, the guys who sit there and have, you know, Ten guns and thousands and thousands of rounds, rounds of ammo, and don't have a box of band aids in the house. Yeah, that's that's, that's going to be a problem. You're much more likely to need a band aid than your guns and ammo, especially if you don't live in a direct city location. So make sure also, and then I'd say after medical attention, because that's something that can be short term. You're going to have to consider as you get further and further out, more than a day or two. Then you're going to have to consider food and water. What if the supply chain of water is shut down? Do you have an alternative? Do you know where the nearest creek is? Do you have a way to purify that water if you can get it? Make it drinkable. Do you have a procedure for that? Do you have equipment for that? I mean, sometimes it's just as easy as putting a few drops of bleach in something, letting it sit for 24 hours to let the chlorine come back out, and that should be enough to purify it. Or having the proper filter that takes out all the microbes that you can either drink through or pour water through to filter into a, another container. Or sometimes it's just a matter of if you see something coming and it's in the, now this is this is risky again because it could already happen by the time you see it happening maybe it's too late, but if you see it happening and it's not too late, fill your bathtubs with water. As long as the water system is still working, fill those bathtubs up, covering cover them with plastic sheeting to keep it from evaporating. You have water for your family for several for several days, maybe even a month, and find a way to keep it purified. Like I say, bleach or chlorine is probably the easiest way to do that. And in small doses, you can pull a bucket of water out, let it sit for 24 hours. The chlorine will come out in the form of bubbles, and it will be eliminated from the from the water you drink. So it won't have that heavy chlorine taste. But that's probably your next thing because water, what is it? They say there's what? Uh, the, the threes, like three minutes you can go without air, three days without water, 30 days without food. So consider those when you're thinking about the threes. So obviously if you have air, you have water, that's the first step. Then you need food. you got to have a way to sustain yourself after you have your medical first aid taken care of. Like I say, prescriptions, medicine for allergies, things like that. 
And once you have food, you have it prepared, you have it stored safely, you have it stored for long term to where you could survive for a month if you had to, if the food, if the supply chains were eliminated, you could do that. You could make that happen. And then you got to consider something else. What about your pets? You have dogs or cats or turtles or whatever they are. You need food for them also, especially, well, my personal preference would be dog because a dog acts as a security system as well. They will let you know if someone's creeping around your backyard, your front yard, or trying to get into your house. That's the very best way to protect yourself. Like I say, alarm systems will work on backup power, but only for a limited amount of time if power is cut. We're going to get into that a little later. So you have water, you have food, you have some some medical supplies stored up. Now, what about just the basics? Like, do you have toothbrushes in your in your survival gear? That would be something you might want to get. A few towels, you know, rags, something where you, if you had to wash yourself with limited amounts of water, could you do that? You know, change of clothes, clothes for different seasons. All this stuff needs to be thought of, and most of this stuff is pretty inexpensive. To prepare for. The biggest expense with most of this stuff is having the room for it. Because everybody's got an old jacket that they don't wear anymore, or when they get a new jacket, you save the old jacket, put it in a backpack with some other basic supplies. So if you had to leave, do you have a pack prepared, or would you have to start packing if something were to happen? Do you take your pack with you? Do you have one ready to go that's got food, water, supplies, clothing, all that stuff in it? Or would you have to pack as soon as something happened? Would you have to try and put it together in the last minute? Now, it's just all things to consider. Now, hopefully it'll never come to that kind of issue that they have in the Ukraine where they're having trouble getting supplies. But if it does, you know, you got to consider how prepared are you willing to be? How prepared do you want to be if this were to happen here? Like I say, do you want to have freeze-dried food? Do you want to have MREs ready, which are meals ready to eat? Now, they do expire, but they'll last for five to seven years, and then ideally you rotate through that stock. You use some of them, or if you keep them cool and dry, they can last for up to 10 years is what I've been told. So consider that. And then what if communications go down? Do you have any alternative source of communication? Do you have a shortwave radio? Do you have extra batteries for the shortwave radio? Do you have walkie-talkies that have an extended range if your cell phone stops working? Or do you have chargers for your cell phone? That would be another thing. How do you get power? What if you need power to run your pump? Even if you have a well in your yard, it's going to need power to run the pump to pull the water out. What if you need power to keep the lights on, you know, to make, to prepare your food? You don't have a way you can, you know, without starting a fire. Do you have ways to start a fire? Do you have matches? But the power now, would you do this with or without fuel? And if you, if they do need fuel, did you have that prepared? And how much of it do you want to keep, and how often do you have to rotate through that to keep it fresh? Now, one thing I can tell you about fuel, which is a little unusual, is you generally want to get gasoline for a generator that is ethanol-free. Because ethanol causes gas to go bad much faster. It doesn't last near as long. And it also can gum up any devices you're putting it in, any engines you're putting it in. It can be gummed up much quicker if it sits in carburetors or sits in fuel lines and some sort of device in a generator or something like that or a car. It's going to be much more likely to go bad if there's ethanol in it. And unfortunately, most fuel now seems to have ethanol. It's harder and harder to find the ethanol-free fuel, but it's out there. And consider if you have a vehicle, if it's a diesel engine, you have a lot more flexibility on fuel storage as well because diesel is not near as flammable, it's not near as explosive, and it can be stored for longer periods of time and stay 
clean, fresh, and usable. So, you know, depending on how far you want to go with this, if you want to change the vehicle you drive to make sure it's more uh, flexible, then consider that as well. But, you know, it's just it, these are all skills and things you need. Now, one thing that's tough is medical because medical requires training and skill that most people don't have or have very limited amounts of training in. But, you know, that's usually the first thing that happens during a natural disaster, during a man-made disaster. Medical is usually one of the first things that gets exercised that, that is needed. So consider that as a possible, if you're going to take a training class, that would be one thing to do right after you learn how to use your weapon effectively. Because we're locked and loaded, so we're going to talk about weapon effectiveness, weapon training, and that kind of thing. So, all right. Well, think about getting prepared. Think about what you need to do. I'm Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and we'll be back in a few minutes. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. I'm back. I'm Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you've been listening to America's Web Radio. And right before we left the break, we were talking about preparedness. Now, this is something that can happen in so many different levels. Like I said, we talked about food, we talked about water, we talked about medical. And then, of course, there's always the most fun part, talking about the guns you might need to help defend yourself and be your own first responder. I've probably been through this a hundred times, but I just like talking about it. What kind of guns are you going to need? Depends on where you are. If you're in a rural situation, something with longer range is going to be more effective for you because you may have to keep people from getting on your property, from stealing your crops, from stealing your tractor. Now, you can move things as close as you can, but you're still going to need more range in a, in a rural setting. So you might need to concentrate more on your rifle than you do your pistol because by the time someone gets within pistol range of a hundred yards or less... They may, it may be too late for you to be able to stop them at that point if there's multiple attackers. But if you have the range and you've got the room and you can see people coming from a long ways out, you need to work with a rifle more than you do a pistol as far as a self-defense weapon goes. You know, And also, having some way to be alerted if people were to come on your property in a, in a, in a rural situation. Would you know if somebody was coming up the driveway? How far down should you be able to detect them? There are devices you can get which sense people coming in a driveway or going past a certain point, and it sends a signal to the to the main house or where you're living, so you can defend against that. Because you want to know when someone's coming. And like I say, ur- ur- 
rural settings, trouble with that word, rural settings are easier to defend with a long-range weapon because they usually are dealing with longer ranges. You want to be able to keep people at bay. You don't want them to be able to get too close before you're able to eliminate any possible threats. Now, of course, you also want other weapons if you're in a rural setting because that may be how some of your food is acquired. You have a better chance of shooting a rabbit, a squirrel, a deer, or whatever kind of animal who can provide food for you, or even fishing in a stream if you have a stream or a river close by or even on your property. You need a way to be able to get food from those sources. Now, in the city, things are a lot different. You know, you're not going to be able to shoot a deer in the city more than likely, or a squirrel, or maybe a pigeon perhaps, but that's about as far as you're going to get. And you don't need as long a range of weapon. If you need something in a rifle format, I would suggest getting a pistol caliber carbine. This is a, a rifle that fires a pistol cartridge. <clears throat> Now, the advantage of a pistol caliber carbine is that it has a longer barrel, so it has extended range, more accuracy, because that's three points of contact. What I mean by that is when you have a pistol, you have two points of contact, both your hands. Each hand is a point of contact. Now, with a rifle, you have two hands and a shoulder or a cheek to to have a three-point contact, which is much more stable than two-point contact. So consider that. Pistol caliber carbines are great because especially with pistol braces nowadays, they can be had in very short, very compact designs and be extremely effective in an urban situation because the urban situation is likely to be much more fast-moving, much more fast-paced, and the threats could come from many more directions. But you don't want anything too big because you don't want to have over-penetration because you're in a city setting. you got walls that you don't want to shoot through to protect your own family, to protect your neighbors, to protect people that are close by. You don't want to accidentally shoot the wrong person if you have to shoot. And using a pistol caliber cuts down on that substantially in an urban setting. So consider a pistol probably one of your main weapons. Also because a pistol is concealable. You can carry it around. Most people don't know it's there until they need to know. By that time, hopefully, you've got the drop on them. You're you're giving instructions to somebody to leave you alone, to get away from you, to stand down, and hopefully that's enough. But if they see you carrying something, of course, you have to be prepared and you have to be more observant than they are. You don't want some getty, somebody trying to steal your weapon either. <clears throat> and now that brings me to the next thing is, can you do all this yourself? Now, some people with families... They have people in their family that are all trained, so they can take turns doing certain things. Even their kids have training in certain areas. But if you're in a situation where you don't have a family or you have a family with limited experience in this type of thing, then you need to build a community. You need to find people who are like-minded. You need to have a plan. You need to have these people help you and you help them. You may have a skill they need. They have a skill you need. You need to share. As long as everybody in the group is on the same page and they understand the objective and what they're trying to do, that's where you need to start. And it's hard because a lot of people in, in urban settings, they don't know their neighbors very well. They don't know who's living next door to them necessarily. But that might be the time to reach out and start a community program for a little bit of minor preparedness. You can start by just having a neighborhood meeting. Get to know everybody. So you see them on the street, you know who they are. So if something were to happen, you would be able to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys because you know who your neighbors are. So that's something, you know, knowing your neighbors is important. And another thing, this was actually told to me by a, a police officer. He said, when you're passing people in your neighborhood and your street, make eye contact. Someone who is 
weak, like a robber or burglar, they will avoid on to eye contact with you, and making eye contact with them a lot of times will cause them to look away or look down and cause you to have a little bit of a superior superior stance when it comes to you not looking like a an easy target. So, you know, that's a minor little thing, but it makes a difference. So learn the signals. Learn to look for people that are nervous. Learn to look for people that you don't know who are new in the neighborhood. You see somebody new, keep an eye on them. Watch where they're going. See if they belong there. And this can be done even without a disaster going on. This could be done just as everyday preparedness. But this would translate well if a situation occurred where we needed to have extra measures to keep everybody safe. Be aware, be situationally aware, and get to know your neighbors and work with them if they're like-minded. Now, you'll have the people say, oh, the government will take care of me. I don't need to prepare for that stuff. Leave those people out of your community. Don't worry about including them because they are not interested. Have people who are interested, know what they expect out of it, and have common goals to work towards. That way, everybody can take on a different job in the preparedness scenario. One guy could have a 100 blankets saved up. The other guy can have a bunch of food saved up. Another guy can have the guns and ammo saved up or some tactical gear. You know, and everybody can have some eventually, but, you know, there'd be certain people. If you have a doctor who lives nearby or he wants to be in your community, that would be fantastic. An electronics engineer, someone who could fix things if things were to fall apart. Anybody who has any building skills in case something is broken or needs to be repaired or fixed or barricades need to be built. You have somebody who knows how to do that, and he can. T- all these people can teach some of their skills to everybody else in the group because you want everybody to have some of the basic skills of every area of expertise. And you may find that you get into a scenario that you may like more than you thought. <clears throat> There's a book out there, and the guy was basically a complete liberal, didn't believe in guns, but then he started looking at things a little differently when he saw some of these shows about preppers, and he wanted to learn more. And he realized his views would have to change. The idea of what he accepted and what he didn't accept would have to change if he wanted to survive in the event of some sort of natural disaster. And it's his journey going through this. And I can't believe, can't remember the name of it right now. I want to say it's called Emergency. This book may save your life. And he talks, it's a lot of, um, I guess, philosophy in his stating of his experiences, how he ended up getting into this type of thing, what it took for him to do that, and how he practiced it, things he bought, people he talked to, things he learned. And all these things translate well into the real world by gathering knowledge. Because after, after training with your weapon, you need knowledge. When can you use it? When can you not use it? How does it have to be maintained? How much food are you going to need for four people for a month? How much water do you need? Do you have the capability to purify that much water or store that much water? If you do store that much water, will it be clean by the time you need it after 30 days? So consider all these things. (coughs) Excuse me. And get out there. And like I say, if you think there might be a threat or if you want to prepare for a threat, even if it's not there, groups of people will do better than single people or single families. It's always better to have more knowledge, more skills, to share with everybody. And if you have something you can share with them, that's even better. If you're just there to learn, start there. And then when new people come into the group, you can share what you've learned from the more experienced people. You know, there's an old African expression that says, every time an old man dies, the world loses a library. So even if somebody is incapable of actually helping you per se 
to be physical and do certain things, they may have knowledge of certain areas that would be helpful to your entire group. So don't exclude somebody just because they're old or they may not be able to walk or move as well. These people have the knowledge you may need. So be aware of that. Don't let a library die without being able to garner some of its knowledge. Get to know what you need to know by absorbing knowledge from other people. Most people are happy to teach. Some people are better at it than others, but most people, if they understand something thoroughly, they can explain it in a simple manner. In fact, that was another expression I heard, that the truest understanding of a subject or skill is being able to explain it in a simple fashion. Because if you don't understand it well, you can't explain it to anybody else in a simple way that they would understand it. But learn things, gather new skills. It never hurts to have them. And this applies, of course, to weapons as well. If you know how to fight, you know how to do a reload, then learn something else. You know, learn how to engage multiple targets at different ranges. Now, that's harder to practice on, like, a local shooting range, but a lot of them have classes, courses, even competitions you can join that they allow all skill levels into where you can learn to engage multiple targets or learn to identify threats versus not. Some of the best training I ever had was competitions where they had three-dimensional dummies or three-dimensional targets with their hands, and they could put different things in their hands depending on whether they were a threat or not. So you walk into a room, you have to look around, see who's got the gun, who's got a cell phone, who's got a Coke can in their hand, and not shoot the wrong person. That's something you have to do because, remember, every bullet has a lawyer attached to it when you fire it in self-defense. So learn to identify quickly, but not too quickly. Don't make a mistake. Be careful. Be prepared. There's nothing else I can say about this except get out there, garner new skills, gain them, figure out what you need to do, figure out what other people need to do to help you and what you can do to help other people. If you're a shooter, help the guy who's a doctor. Teach him how to shoot. Let him teach you basic first aid. Sharing knowledge is the easiest way to be prepared because the more knowledge you have in different subjects, the more valuable you're going to be to your community, to your group, to your family. And that is the essence of being prepared. Now, I imagine in Ukraine right now, a lot of people are wishing they had been more prepared in certain areas. They never thought they'd have to pick up arms with their countrymen or their family and actually stand their ground and fight a superpower, a world superpower. But it's happening. It's happening right now. An independent country has just been invaded, and they are fighting for their territory, their families, their lives. They're fighting for their way of life. And if that ever happens here, are you going to be prepared enough to fight for our way of life? Like I say, I hope that never happens here. I hope we never have to deal with it. But at some level, everybody has to be prepared to some level. They can't just let it go forever. You can't just count on everybody else. You can't think the government's going to come save me. You can't believe the government's always there to protect you. We've seen now, you know, and FEMA's had a few incidences where their response time and their ability to get things people need to certain places has fallen apart. The supply chain issues make it even worse now because it's harder to get things that you might need to survive. Have you been to the grocery store lately? Have you been to the gas station lately? Everything costs more. And costing more is just one way to pull more money out of your pocket that you could use for preparation or for savings for for a future. And let's hope, like I say, it never comes to our country's shores. But if it does, I want you to be the one that people can turn to for help or the one that you can share knowledge with or be able to organize people to be able to share knowledge with them. 
be prepared, be ready, and don't be caught off guard. That's something I can't stress enough. And we'll be back next time with more tips and tricks. I'm Roger B. This is Locked and Loaded, and you've been listening to America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.